This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Today, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Pentagon announced that it has returned to maximum telework in response to the skyrocketing COVID-19 cases in the D.C. metro area. The Pentagon will be working remotely until at least the end of January. The announcement comes as the Defense Department is rolling out a new software suite called DOD 365. That platform has higher security systems to support both in-person and remote workers. President Biden has signed a $740 billion bill authorizing funding to overhaul sexual assault prosecutions. The bill falls under the National Defense Authorization Act. The NDAA will require the Pentagon in 2022 to create an independent office for each branch of the military to handle serious crimes, including rape and sexual assault. The bill also provides funding for the DOD to review the Afghanistan war. The Missile Defense Agency now has the authority to research and develop laser technology for ballistic and hypersonic missile defense applications. The fiscal 2022 NDAA gives that authority to the director of the MDA. Congress also gave that agency $100 million to use for directed energy. Gender-based harassment and assault is a long-standing issue for the U.S. military. According to the New York Times, nearly one in four service women report being sexually assaulted in the military. The Women, Peace and Security Act of 2017, while mostly focused on international partners, also has requirements for the Defense Department. Kyle Ann Hunter is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. Kyle Ann, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me this morning. You know, I just mentioned the Women, Peace and Security Act from 2017. Can you explain the purpose of that act and how it's related to the Defense Department? Absolutely. And first, thank you for covering this incredibly important topic. The Women, Peace and Security Act is really a landmark piece of legislation that codifies into law the first time that women have an essential role in our national security. When we look at this broadly in regards to the DOD, there are three pillars, as you briefly touched on earlier on. Pillar one is a recognition that the DOD needs to be a inclusive and diverse place for women to succeed across the ranks and all level of security. And this is a really unique facet that we that we have and, and one that I know we'll talk about much more in, uh, in this interview. The other two, as you mentioned, do relate to international relations, but have a key aspect when we talk about gender-based violence. One of those second pillars is looking that there is a recognition that conflict impacts women and girls differently and that there are unique protections that need to be put in place. And the other is a recognition that in working with partners across the DOD and across international security, security arrangements, there needs to be a recognition that women play a important and unique role. The Women, Peace and Security Act is based off of UN Resolution 1325 that uh, was passed back in 2000. And so again, it's really landmark that we've now codified into law this need to holistically and meaningfully include women in our international security. But how would implementing this act really address sexual assault in the military? How does it improve that? 
So there's three big things that, that we look at with regards to improving the issues around military sexual assault. And I also will encourage everyone to read the Independent Review Commission's report on military sexual assault, where we go into this in, in great, great detail as well. So when we think about this, the first thing that implementing this act does is elevate issues of gender-based violence to key operational issues. Far too often when we think about things related to gender-based violence, they get dismissed as being women's issues, things that we need to deal with after the real hard security things are done. But especially this pillar one, this recognition that women have a unique role and the DOD must recognize that. To do that, it shows that women's participation is a operational part of our security. So that's number one, is just changing the culture. Number two, when we implement this, is that it forces us to actually set an example for our allies and partners. You know, for a long time, the U.S. had thought of anything to do with women's involvement, the women, peace and security as an as an over there problem, as something we need to implement in Afghanistan, as something we need to think about with regards to security force assistance. This again elevates it and says no, to meaningfully engage with partners, we have to set the example that women are able to not just serve, but to thrive in service. And that finally, it forces a recognition that women's leaving the service is a key aspect of our national security. When we look at reasons why women leave or really don't join to, to begin with, what we see is that either experiences with or fears of, which are really just as important as your experiences with gender-based violence and or discrimination, have limited the talent pool that we have to, to draw from for our national security. And drawing from a robust talent pool is gonna be essential to keep us a safe, you know, so, quite frankly, and this act recognizes that. So, Kylan, the DOD has released its own strategy for implementing that act, and that was released in June 2020. What progress has the department made since then? So there's been slow progress, but progress. And I think most importantly, there's been progress with this most recently passed National Defense in, uh, Authorization Act, which has some very key structural aspects among them establishing the Office of the Special Victims Prosecutors that will make decisions about military sexual assault cases and really rebuild trust in the system that there. That is absolutely essential. We've also seen some of the services take some great initiatives to both target women in recruitment, but also lessen some of these structural barriers to their participation, whether it's better access to childcare, maternal, maternal health care, the way parental leave has been has been handled. But I think again this this NDAA, we're seeing some very landmark le legislation that is going to help to reach that strategy that the DOD put out last year. Kylan, briefly, and I know this is a big topic, but you said in your report, quote, sexual harassment and assault cannot be combated in isolation. They must be fully integrated into all training. Essentially, this needs to be trained out of people. How do you do that? So the military is incredibly good at training out behaviors and training in other behaviors. That's a cornerstone to what we say we do and in initial training. What we need to do is bring in issues of gender-based violence, harassment, and assault into our military core values. When I think about this as a Marine, the ideas of honor, courage, and commitment aren't just things that you experience in combat, but are aspects of how we fundamentally treat each other. And if we bring that into training at every level, from your initial recruit training or officer training, up through your 
follow-on military education schools, we will start to see a cultural change because then it becomes inculcated as part of what it is to be a member of the military. All right, well, Kyle Ann, thank you so much for your work on this subject, and I appreciate you being on the program. Coming next, we take a look at the situation between Russia and Ukraine. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. and NATO should respond to Russia's latest movements. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Russia is increasing its military presence at Ukraine's borders. In response, President Biden says the U.S. would impose new sanctions if Russia takes further military action. Stephen Pfeiffer was U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and is now a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. Ambassador, welcome to the program. Morning. How are you doing today? What do we know about the recent phone call between President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin? Has there been any change on Moscow's part as a result of that call? Yes, well, in the phone call last week, as in the phone call earlier in December, uh, it looks like President Biden tried to do two things. It was one, lay out a series of costs for Russia in terms of sanctions, more military assistance to Ukraine, and a deeper NATO military presence on NATO's eastern flank. Those would be costs to Russia if Russia goes militarily into Ukraine but also trying to point out that there is a path to dialogue and diplomacy. Uh, and so we've had those conversations. There will be uh, sets of meetings next week, a U.S.-Russia meeting, a NATO-Russia meeting, and a meeting of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, and that may give us an indication of how much impact the uh, president's uh, conversations have had in terms of affecting the Kremlin's course. What is Russia asking for from the U.S. and from NATO? Well, what Russia has asked for, they proposed two draft agreements, a draft U.S.-Russia agreement and a draft NATO-Russia agreement. There are a number of provisions in those agreements that are simply non-starters. For example, they ask NATO to forswear any more enlargement. They ask NATO to withdraw all troops and the small numbers of troops that have been deployed on the new members that joined the alliance after 1997. And those provisions are not likely to get any traction with NATO. But there are some elements uh, talking about perhaps uh, establishing new communications channels, a discussion about some limitations on military activities that if applied in a reciprocal basis, if the Russians were prepared to also respond to American and, uh, and NATO concerns, might provide a basis for some discussion and even a negotiation. Uh, but we don't know that. And why is Russia choosing right now to escalate the situation? What are they hoping to gain? Well, I believe the current crisis is first and foremost about Russia's concern about losing Ukraine. You've had this military buildup by the Russian military near Ukraine's borders now for more than two months. And there seems to be a concern in Moscow that they are on the verge of irretrievably losing Ukraine. Now, the big reason for this is, of course, Russian actions over the past eight years, the seizure of Crimea, Russian involvement in a conflict in Donbass that's cost more than 13,000 lives. Russian policy has had the effect of pushing Ukraine away from Russia, and you have growing interest in Ukraine in joining institutions such as the European Union and NATO, which Ukrainians more and more see as vital for Ukraine's security. So the crisis, well, the agreements that Russia put forward last month frame it as a crisis between Russia and NATO. I think it's really about Ukraine. 
I know, uh, Mr. Ambassador, that your experience is with the State Department, but what about sending weapons and military supplies to Ukraine? Is that already happening? That has been happening. In fact, it goes back to 2014, uh, and including in the last <clears throat> four years, it's included lethal military assistance, such as Javelin anti-armor missiles. Uh, and I believe that this is something that the United States and other NATO countries should be doing. It seems pretty clear that NATO is not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. You're not going to see NATO combat troops in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, the United States and other European countries should be doing what they can to help the Ukrainians better defend themselves. And to the extent that they provide that kind of assistance, that may help deter and dissuade Russia from launching a new assault on Ukraine. And what's the capability right now for Ukraine to defend itself? Well, the Ukrainian military is substantially better than it was in 2014. It's twice as large. It has a significant number of personnel who have military experience. They've, they've faced off against Russian and Russian proxy forces along the line of contact in eastern Ukraine. And there's several hundred thousand veterans. Uh, so they're even talking now about preparations for a partisan guerrilla warfare if the Russians come in. Uh, but I think it's probably still pretty clear that the Russian military in the end would be able to defeat the Ukrainian military, but the Ukrainians would be able to extract a price. And that may be the biggest thing holding the Russians back is that while on the one hand, taking a very strong view internationally plays well for the Kremlin with the Russian public, I don't believe that lots of dead Russian soldiers are going to be very popular. And finally, I, you know, President Biden has said that the U.S. would impose sanctions if Russia attacked. How painful would those sanctions be to Russia and how would they likely respond? Administration officials uh, say that the sanctions would be dramatically more painful to Russia than anything that's been imposed to date. And people who are smarter about sanctions than me say that on a scale of one to ten, we're only at about a level of maybe three to three and a half in terms of sanctions on Russia. So there are things that can happen. For example, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, that has now been completed but not yet certified, I believe that that's a dead issue if the Russians go into uh, uh, Ukraine militarily. Either the German government will kill it, or if the German government does not, then I believe the Biden administration will no longer waive sanctions on the pipeline. So I think there's a significant degree of pain. And it's interesting that the Russians for the last seven years take this attitude that we don't care about it, Western sanctions. They really, really don't have an impact. But, if but you they really into, do, don't they? <laughs> they? They really do. If you look at if you look at the readout, the Russian readout of the phone call, uh, the last phone call between the two presidents, it says that it was made clear to President Biden that if there are American sanctions, that could lead to a rupture in U.S.-Russia relations. The All Russians right. care about sanctions. Well, Mr. Ambassador, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for being on the program. Up next, how many nuclear weapons does the U.S. need for an effective deterrence? Straight ahead on Government Matters, we discuss the possibility of a no-first-use policy for President Biden. We'll be right back. More than 700 scientists are asking President Biden to declare that the U.S. would never strike first using nuclear weapons in a conflict. Right now, countries including the U.S., Russia and China all have thousands of nuclear warheads at their disposal. Daryl Kimball is executive director at the Arms Control Association. Daryl, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. 
Do you think President Biden will announce a no first use policy for nuclear weapons? Well, President Biden during the campaign said that he wanted to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. Uh, policy. He wanted to, the United States once again to become a leader on nuclear arms control. And he said that he would uh, adopt a policy that says that the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter uh, the use of nuclear weapons by other countries on the United States or our allies. That is not exactly uh, a no first use policy, but it's, it's a, a close cousin. And I think it's very likely that President Biden will announce uh, in the nuclear posture review uh, a adjustment to US declaratory policy uh, along those lines. I think that would be an important shift in the right direction. It would rule out the use of nuclear weapons against non-nuclear threats like cyber, or chemical weapons or biological weapons or conventional threats. But critics say that a no first use policy sends a message of weakness to American adversaries and leaves allies vulnerable. What do you think of that? Well, I disagree with that uh, assertion because uh, the, a, a policy that says that the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter nuclear attacks still leaves open the possibility that the United States will respond with nuclear weapons if Russia or China or some other country uses nuclear weapons uh, against uh, the United States or our allies. Uh, that is an extremely strong deterrent against uh, nuclear use by others uh, that uh, helps support the so-called extended deterrence policy the United States has had. And it still leaves open the possibility that um, we could have a, a, a nuclear war um, that would have devastating consequences if nuclear weapons are ever used again. You mentioned China and Russia. They are both modernizing their nuclear weapons. They're adding capabilities such as hypersonics. How should the U.S. respond to that? Well, all three countries, United States, Russia, and China, are uh, taking steps to improve or upgrade uh, their nuclear forces. Um, and we have to be careful that uh, we, the United States, don't get into an unconstrained uh, nuclear arms race uh, with Russia and China. We've got to keep in mind that uh, the United States and Russia have uh, over 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. The U.S. and Russian arsenals are by far larger than any other country's nuclear arsenals. The U.S. and Russia have about 1,300 to 1,400 deployed long-range nuclear weapons at any given time. Uh, China has around 100 with a total of about 300 nuclear weapons. So China's nuclear modernization and its apparent effort to build up the total number of nuclear weapons it has from about 300 to perhaps as many as 600, 700 uh, within the next decade is worrisome. Uh, but we should not uh, rush ahead, uh, build up our forces. Uh, we need to engage in dialogue with Russia and China to freeze uh, China's uh, arsenal where it is now at the very least and to work with Russia to further reduce what I consider to be our still bloated and overly large nuclear stockpiles. Well, so then, Daryl, how many nuclear weapons are enough for an effective deterrent? And how do well, you determine a, that? Yeah, that's a key question. And there's no scientific equation that determines that. Um, uh, you know, and this this is one of the questions that we uh, believe President Biden needs to take a close look at in the nuclear posture review, which is currently underway. The Pentagon is coordinating 
the early phases of this, but the president uh, will need to determine, uh, you know, how many nuclear weapons are sufficient uh, to deter a nuclear attack against the U.S. or its allies. Um, some have argued that it just takes uh, a small uh, handful, uh, a few hundred uh, nuclear weapons, um, rather than over a thousand. Uh, we at the Arms Control Association have recommended that the United States and Russia can both cut by one third the total number of deployed strategic weapons and still have more than uh, enough nuclear weapons to hold at risk uh, military targets in Russia or by Russia in the United States, as well as in China. So there's room to go down. Um, there's no, certainly no reason to go up. And I would add that the cost of the US nuclear arsenal, uh, the Russian nuclear arsenal is enormous, especially uh, when we're talking about in the United States, replacing all three legs of the so-called nuclear triad. Uh, I wanted spending. to ask you about that, Daryl, because I want to know what you're recommending specifically regarding the modernization of the nuclear arsenal and the triad. Well, we've done uh, some detailed analysis in the last uh, several years, uh, in, in, and we've seen that the United States can save hundreds of billions of dollars by uh, slowing down or reducing the size of the uh, delivery platforms, uh, the number of platforms, the number of submarines, um, or in the case of the land-based leg of the triad, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, we could extend the life of the Minuteman III missile for another 20 years and forego the uh, production and development of an entirely new class of ICBMs and save tens of billions of dollars each year uh, amounting to um, almost $100 billion over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. All right. Well, Daryl, thank you very much for being on the program. We appreciate your time. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also find every episode on our website. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable 
include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.